Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez's team has developed a low-cost vaccine, partnering with India and other international entities to allow poor and developing countries to produce their own vaccines to address the lack of global vaccine access. Also a pediatrician, he's concerned about the low vaccination rate in the U.S. and around the world, allowing for the spread of more variants. Laurie Robertson also checks in, the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Peter Hotez here on Conversations on Healthcare. We begin 2022 with a grim statistic. The seven-day average for new COVID cases in the United States has increased 82% compared with the previous seven days. The dominant variant is Omicron. We're told more variants will be on the way until the world can deploy additional vaccines. Our guest has an intriguing approach that promises hope. Dr. Peter Hotez of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development has been called a global health warrior. The center's in its third decade is one of the leading vaccine development centers in the world. And now Dr. Hotez and his colleague have developed Core BVAX. It's a low cost open source alternative to the mRNA vaccines, which we're using uh, here in the United States, but which have been slow to roll out in developing and under vaccinated countries around the globe. But the Indian government has granted emergency approval for its use. Uh, Dr. Hotez, we appreciate you joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare, especially at this critical time. And so many questions to ask about the new vaccine. Uh, were the trials were done? Uh, what age range does it cover? Uh, how does it work uh, compared to the mRNA vaccines that uh, we are so familiar with in terms of the Moderna and Pfizer? And tell us about its efficacy. Well, this is a uh, recombinant protein vaccine that's similar to the hepatitis B vaccine that's been in use for 40 years. It's made through microbial fermentation and yeast, and most parents in the U.S. have given it to their kids, or the parents have gotten it to them for themselves uh, when they were kids. So it's got a great safety track record, and the level of virus neutralizing antibody looks pretty exciting in terms of com and comparable to the mRNA or adenovirus vectored vaccines, but at a fraction of the cost and ability to scale it up. And because this technology is already in place, in places like in terms of the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine, um, technology is in place already in Indonesia, Bangladesh, uh, Vietnam, Brazil, and India, of course. And so uh, they can easily adopt our, our approach. So what we do is we develop the prototype vaccine because we develop vaccines for neglected diseases of poverty We've been doing that for 20 years and then transfer the technology um, uh, with no patents no strings attached now to india indonesia bangladesh and, and botswana india is the furthest along they have 150 million doses already ready to go with plans to scale it to a billion doses this year and uh, was just got released through emergency use authorization so everything is 
really moving pretty well. Um, we could have gone faster had we some support from the G7 countries, but that's life. But in the meantime, we're hoping to make up for some lost time. Well, Dr. Hotez, uh, thinking back to our last conversation with you, I imagine this has been uh, an incredibly intense year. Not a lot of sleep, a lot of uh, work pushing this forward. We want to thank you, uh, as always, for your work. But, but tell us more. Um, this, is, this is major news, obviously. Um, and for India uh, and the other countries that you've described to have access to a new vaccine supply, obviously a huge step forward. But I remember uh, reading back early in the epidemic responses to vaccines around the world and India had some of the same issues the United States did around vaccine hesitancy, uh, resistance to vaccines. What are your people on the ground in India telling you about uh, the willingness of uh, people now using India as the country where you're uh, launching this uh, to accept the vaccine and, and uh, really moving forward to get people vaccinated now that they might have a reliable supply of vaccine? Well, we're hoping hesitancy will be lower than some of the other technologies because, you know, people of India have already been getting a vaccine of this technology for four decades. So they're familiar with it. They know it's excellent safety profile. So hopefully that will mitigate it against it somewhat. Um, the other issue is uh, making certain that India will donate uh, doses to the COVAX sharing facility. Uh, that's going to be uh, also important. So it's going to be a mixture of vaccines used within India, but also exported to the world. And India has that track record as, as well. And as I say, we're, India is the first out of the starting gate. Mm -hmm. We're hoping to make similar progress with Indonesia, Bangladesh, and, and Southern Africa. And if we can get additional support from the U.S. government or others, we can make this arrangement with still other countries as well. And the advantage of the technology, we're not constrained like we are with mRNA and our adenovirus where there's limits on the amounts you can make. There's sky's the limit for, for this technology. You know, we recently had Dr. Hazeltine and Dr. Topol on who were complaining about the lack of sort of global uh, uh, leadership uh, that's sort of fallen apart. You just mentioned the G7 countries were sort of an obstacle. Talk to us a little more about the difficulty that you encounter or the what needs to be, what road needs to be cleared uh, so that we can start uh, disseminating what sounds like a very easy to produce vaccine. And again, we're, I, I know it hasn't had a peer review uh, article been published on it yet, but but talk a little bit about the, the global partnerships or lack of. Well, actually, by the way, we've got about seven publications on our vaccine. So all of, we put everything in the public domain. So every aspect of its production, um, its, its features, its characteristics is out there and you can just go to the PubMed index and put my name in and, 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 and you'll see um, the, a fair amount of details about the vaccine. The clinical data has not been published yet. And that's because we, um, we provide the vaccine with no strings attached. So it's owned by the company, Biological E in India, just like it's owned by Biopharma in Indonesia and SEPTA in Bangladesh. And they work out the publication plan with the Indian regulators. And they say it should be forthcoming uh, very soon um, and actually probably will happen faster than the pharma companies did after their vaccines were released for emergency use. So their vaccines had a three to 17 week lag before the publication uh, came out after emergency use. So I think it'll actually happen uh, faster. 
Um, so that's moving forward. But and I think that's an important point that we don't. There's this concept in global health that we practice. Everyone talks about called decolonization, and that we're not trying to own the technology. We're trying to give it to the countries to empower the countries so they can they can be out in, in the lead. So it look it's looking really exciting, and all that information is uh, forthcoming. Dr. Hotez, I think that uh, you know, for those of us just kind of on the front lines trying to respond to all of our communities and our uh, patients, uh, it's a little bit of whiplash this year with COVID. We think we're doing better. We think we're doing worse. Delta arrives, Omicron comes, and I'll tell you, just on the front lines, you know, we're seeing just such dramatic increases uh, in infection. I know that just mirrors the national data, but maybe you could. Uh, just tell our listeners, is, is the vaccine that you've developed another tool in the toolbox of vaccines, but one that we believe can uh, be more readily available and distributed because of how you've approached this in terms of the ownership at the, the country level? Or is there is there anything fundamentally different in terms of effectiveness or uh, effectiveness based on the number of doses? Or is, is it one more good tool or something fundamentally different? Just help our readers get a handle on that, if you would. Well, well, well the difference is it's produced locally um, and meant to empower the low and middle income countries to produce their own vaccine. And um, it could be scaled locally and mm -hmm. can be distributed locally. So, and if you, okay. and in terms of the nature of the technology, since there's already widespread experience locally to, to manufacture it, we think this is one that could be made in the billions of doses uh, very quickly. And, and so if you're talking about vaccinating the Southern hemisphere, the global South, we think this, this could move quite quickly. I mean, the, the truth is had we a fraction of the funding that Moderna had or Pfizer, Pfizer had from public sources, who knows the country, the, the world might've been vaccinated by now and we would never have heard of something called Omicron. And so that's where the lack of leadership comes is the G7 countries and the US government have not had that commitment to vaccinating the global South. And as a result, Delta arose out of an unvaccinated population in India earlier this year and last year, and, and now uh, Omicron out of Southern Africa. And, the, and we're gonna have other variants of concern arise until we make that commitment to vaccinate the world. And, Hopefully this will be an important first step. Yep. Well, that's a pretty important addition to the toolbox. Thank you for clarifying that. President Biden just spoke to the American people about the uh, surging Omicron variant and the need to beef up our supplies of therapeutics. He announced that the government was buying 10 million more doses of the Pfizer antiviral. I'm wondering if you could tell us why this therapeutic is so necessary in our toolkit to contain the severe disease and to lower hospitalizations from COVID. Well, you know, two of our three monoclonal antibodies uh, appear not to work against Omicron, the one from Regeneron and the one from uh, Lilly. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. And all we have in terms of effective therapeutics right now is the monoclonal antibody from GlaxoSmithKline slash Veer. And that's only available in limited quantities and hospital formularies and the Remdesivir, which has to be given parenterally. So having Paxlovid, the Pfizer medication, Right. would help a lot. And if we could get that sooner rather than later, that can also make a big difference. And so that is also a priority. But a reason why this Omicron epidemic is so dangerous, we have knocked out some tools that we have in our toolbox for treating it. Um, a lot of healthcare providers are getting sick and, 
and can attend to the patients that are going into hospitals and the hospitalizations are rising. So even though on average, Omicron may not be as severe as some of the previous lineages, that net aggregate effect of knocking healthcare providers out of the workforce of not having um, adequate uh, treatment tools creates a very dangerous situation for the country. Yeah, we we are certainly seeing that on the front lines uh, here in the United States every day. Uh, But I wonder uh, if I can ask you uh, the strategy of uh, how this really uh, becomes available throughout the world. Are you working with the World Health Organization? Is that part of your strategy uh, as you think about how this vaccine could really uh, get to all corners of the globe and try and bring this pandemic to an end? It is, and also the uh, developing country vaccine manufacturers, in fact, they call themselves that, the Developing Country Vaccine Manufacturers Network, are now working with the World Health Organization for um, emergency use listing globally. So BioE has started those discussions. Uh, With the WHO, we're also in on some of those discussions because to get this pre-qualified by the World Health Organization makes it much easier to for uh-huh. biological E to export the yeah. vaccine to other countries. And so we're moving forward on that as quick as possible. You know, we're entering uh, 2022, ha- happy new year, uh, but it's the third year of the pandemic. Uh, we are hit a million cases, positive cases the other day. Uh, I, w- I wonder if you can give our listeners a sense of, of the arc of this COVID uh, virus that's pandemic that's going on. What's your sense of what what to be hopeful about and and what keeps you up at night? Well, I do think this will subside, and and based on the kinetics of the or the the uh, curve of the of the of this Omicron wave in the UK and South Africa, hopefully it starts to go down as quickly as it's gone up, and whether or not it plateaus for a while remains to be seen. But eventually this will pass. And then we've got to decide what the world looks like post-Omicron. We know um, the likely Omicron is probably not going to produce much in the way of durable protection. People will still need to get vaccinated. So that's got to be a priority. It means defeating the this very aggressive anti-vaccine activities that are causing people to needlessly lose their lives by being defiant of vaccines. 200,000 Americans since June 1 who refused vaccines lost their lives. So anti-vaccine, anti-science activities are a top killer in the United States. So we've got to figure out how to conquer that. And lastly, we've got to vaccinate the world to prevent the new variants from emerging. If we can do those things, we can get out of it, but it's still a pretty high bar. Dr. Hotez, I think as, as the world knows, you are a pediatrician, you're a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine. And I would imagine that at least once or twice a day, people are asking you what's going to happen with schools. We're post the New Year's holiday, certainly seeing huge spikes. There's discussions about whether schools should close, stay open. Uh, certainly seeing increases in numbers of hospitalizations of kids, although probably associated with just the dramatic increase. What, what are you saying to school superintendents and people there on the ground in Texas who want to know whether we need to close schools again and take the kind of draconian measures that we did earlier in the pandemic and really thought we had moved away from? Well, what I've, in fact, I was just asked about the mayor with Mayor New York's decision to keep schools open. And I said, look, 
it's a choice between a bad decision and a bad decision. There's no good decision here. If you, if you uh, go back to virtual learning, we know about the harmful effects over the last two yeah. years of yeah. on kids on the mental health of kids. And the Surgeon General came out with his report at the end of the year. On the other hand, trying to do this with at, at the peak of a variant, which is so highly transmissible, almost to the level of measles, it's that's going to be really, really tough to manage. So is there a benefit to delaying the opening of schools another couple of weeks and tacking it on in the summer, treating it almost like two weeks of snow days? Um, and as I say, I have tremendous empathy and sympathy for administrators making those tough decisions. Yeah. And I could argue it either way. And I think a lot of it has to do with the wishes of the community and the school boards. And, and uh, But either way, it's going to be a very tough decision to make. Mm -hmm. And another tough decision, certainly for parents of young children, right? The still no uh, vaccine on the horizon, or maybe there is one on the zero to five, birth to five years old. And uh, this is particularly uh, uh, troublesome for young people, uh, the Omicron variant. Maybe walk through some advice for parents. Uh, what should they be watching out for uh, in terms of uh, dealing with the variant? And I, I don't simply know what uh, parents can do with, with children in terms of uh, uh, who have no vaccine, but what, what's your best advice now for, for parents? But, you know, I think the key, first of all, is kids five and up are eligible to get vaccinated. And nationally, we're not doing very well vaccinating the five to 11 year olds. Only about 15, 20% of kids are eligible are getting vaccinated. So I think there's room there. Even among the teenagers, um, we're not seeing good vaccination rates in the Northeast, a little better, about 75%, but only about half that in the South. So I think um, uh, maximizing out the use of vaccines for five and up is going to be of paramount importance. And then for the little kids, uh, trying to keep them safe, you know, under five years of age, I don't think we'll have vaccines in the U.S. available uh, anytime in the immediate future. We're trying to do that now for in, in India and globally with our vaccine. So this is the, the reason for being conservative and and trying to make sure your kids wear masks in school so they're not bringing the virus home to the family. Dr. Hotez, congratulations on the development of this new vaccine. We'll be following its path from your lab to India and beyond. You can follow Dr. Hotez's work by going to bcm.edu slash National School of Tropical Medicine, or follow him on Twitter at Peter Hotez. That's H-O-T-E-Z. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for joining us once again on Conversations on Healthcare. Good luck. Thanks so much. And thanks for all your great work and all the best to you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? With the release of its pediatric COVID-19 vaccine, Pfizer switched the buffer used in its formulation to increase the stability of the product. This allowed the vaccine to remain at refrigerator temperatures for longer. The Food and Drug Administration okayed the change, and the change is also being made to some doses for teens and adults. Social media posts, however, have misleadingly suggested that the ingredient swap is dangerous or was added to prevent heart attacks in children. 
There's no evidence to support that. The ingredient in question is tris or trimethamine, which is used as a buffer in the children's vaccine and will soon be available in some adult and teen formulations as well. A buffer keeps doses at the correct pH, neither too acidic or too basic. The original iteration of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine used phosphate-buffered saline, or PBS. Pfizer and the FDA have said the switch was made to improve the stability of its mRNA vaccine, which previously had to be kept ultra-cold for long-term storage and lasted a month in a refrigerator once thawed. The newer version can last in the fridge for up to 10 weeks. Other experts back that up. TRIS has safely been used in other vaccines and other products. Less stringent cold chain requirements are especially helpful for the pediatric vaccine, which is being administered more in doctor's offices. As for social media post claims about TRIS being dangerous or a drug for heart attacks, in large quantities, TRIS can be used as a drug. But here, as in other vaccines and medicines, the compound is present in only a very small amount as an inactive ingredient to keep the vaccine stable. Dr. Kassar Talat, an infectious disease physician and vaccine scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, told us the infinitesimal amount of TRIS in vaccines has absolutely nothing to do with the much larger volumes and higher concentrations of TRIS being given to people who are having heart attacks. The Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is not known to increase the risk of a heart attack in any population. Instead, the cardiac concern that has been identified for the two mRNA vaccines is an increased risk of myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart muscle, and peri pericarditis, an inflammation of the lining surrounding the heart, particularly in young men. But these adverse events are rare, and as a buffer, TRIS would not be expected to modify the risk in either direction. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Daniela Tudor had a revelation a few years ago, waking up on the cold floor of a jail cell. She could ask for help for her drug and alcohol addiction, or she could die. She chose the former. Tudor then launched not only on her own recovery journey, but on a broader quest to develop tools that could help all people grappling with addiction recovery to avoid relapse which is so common, especially in the early days of sobriety. She realized that there needed to be more readily accessible tools for those in recovery to stay connected to their treatment goals beyond the 12-step meetings and the talk therapy sessions. I am in long-term recovery, and I went through a four-week inpatient treatment program where at the end of that four-week program, all I received was a piece of paper that listed an enormous amount of things I'm supposed to do on a daily and weekly basis for the rest of my life to stay in recovery. And I knew that building something on our cell phones that are with us 24-7, regardless of where you're from and, and who you are, would be a way to bridge that gap and keep people accountable through an app to those activities. So she founded We Connect, a relapse prevention on-the-go mobile application that can be downloaded on a smartphone. 
The platform is designed to keep people engaged in their recovery plan using daily reminders and a reward system for when you perform the tasks that are essential to recovery. The individual, along with the support of our certified peer recovery support specialists, are able to input those activities into the app. And when it comes time for that activity to start, you simply check into it. You see at the top of the app how you're earning your incentives. And by the way, this incentive program is based on evidence-based research called contingency management. So it's actually proven to show that it keeps people accountable to their recovery plans or their care plans. The way that we've digitized it and the immediacy of that incentive keeps people accountable to checking into those activities on the go. And the digital platform also allows everyone who's connected to the person's healthcare ecosystem to see in real time activities that are enhancing recovery and also when one might be at higher risk for relapse. We have trained peer recovery support specialists all across the country and they get to leverage a tool that we developed called a data dashboard where they can see in an instance if someone needs additional support or outreach and that is built through the app, keeping them accountable to those activities and the peer having insights on how they're staying accountable to those activities in real time. So it really allows for this connection of support 24 seven and visibility so that when someone needs that added support, you know, not days or weeks go by, which is without this program is what happens, but rather gives insight and gives the option for connection in real time. Since the pandemic hit, Tudor says the WeConnect platform has been a lifeline for those in recovery, those now often cut off from meetings and in-person sessions during the shutdown. Actually, when the pandemic hit, immediately my heart went out for, wow, none of us have support meetings to go to anymore in person. So we immediately stood up with a set of partners, these mutual aid meetings that are online uh, that are led by certified peers and within just a couple months over 200,000 people joined from all states and several countries. We Connect, a downloadable app designed by people in recovery for people in recovery to help maintain sobriety with a support system in the palm of their hand, keeping them on track with health goals, staying connected to a care team and avoiding relapse. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.